Prophets are imaginary. They are illusory. They are not real. The lust for prophets is a chasing after the wind, and many there are that have fallen into the pit because of this avarice. However, let's be up front and lay our cards on the table. This critic or perspective of the prophet motives is a Christian one. There is nothing in atheism, materialism, or religion, religion generally that makes the prophet motive wrong. When it is claimed prophets do not exist in a real-world sense, a certain perspective, a Christian one, is assumed. Think of a criminal robbing his employer. He has taken the day's receipts and absconded with them. He has gained an unearned income. The income of the criminal is balanced by an unearned loss of the original owner. A Christian ought to see that the gain of the criminal is illusory. A materialist will be less inclined to view the act as criminal or as inherently futile. The problem is an accounting problem. If I can gain at your expense, then I can profit at your loss. The question about the validity of profits comes down to whose view of reality can be justified from an economic perspective. The question is, how narrow is your focus? An inarguable fact is that we all occupy this same planet. Pollution does not respect state borders, but following the same line of thinking, we can conclude that profits and losses do not remain within the books of a single business. A business is not confined by the walls of a building. The nation ought not to be thought of as a geological construct contained by borders to a given area of the planet, Though, of course, this is not to say nations do not inhabit cartographic space. We would be wiser if we thought of a nation and a business as a set of accounts. Canada, in this thinking, is represented by a ledger. So are all other nations. But for the sake of clarity, we will deal with Canada alone here. In this way of thinking, Canada is a business entity defined by the accounts in its national ledger, just as a business is defined by its ledger accounts. Every person and legal entity in Canada has an account. Each account has a debit column and a credit column. All economic activity in Canada consists of inflows going into the credit column and outflows going into debt columns or debit columns. In other words, we are treating the Canadian economy as if all transactions were recorded as cash-based cash exchanges. So we are doing cash accounting. When Fred steals from Joe, Fred's credit column increases and Joe's debit column increases by the value of the loss. Fred has made a profit. We cannot deny this fact but the equity position of Canada has not been improved. Let's imagine Joe works one week for Fred, but does not get paid. This could be due to fraud, bankruptcy, or Joe volunteering to work for Fred for free as a volunteer. Fred has once more made a profit, 
Perhaps the value is not recorded in any account book. There is no credit or debit columns recording the transfer. But the transfer has happened regardless. In the same way Fred's loss to Joe, when Joe overtly commits a theft against him, is not recorded in any accounting book. The transfer of value has taken place regardless of any formal accounting. Because Joe volunteered to work for nothing, Joe lost a week's worth of value as determined by his labor, and Fred has gained this value. A transfer of ownership has occurred, yet the equity position of Canada has not improved. A transfer happened between Joe and Fred, but it was a one-way transfer, and it has the same characteristics of an outright theft. If we call it stealing to take what another person has made without going through the free market, what do we call taking advantage of the generosity of others? Is there a name for this? Why do we think it is okay to take what God made, as if God's claims to his creation do not matter? Does this absconding with what belongs to others, even God, seem a small matter to you? Historically, few have cared to keep accurate accounts. Let's imagine you are wandering around planet Earth and you happen to come across an island. So you claim it. You might claim it for yourself or a sovereign. You build a home and plant crops and live on it. This seems okay. This is personal ownership. But what if you find diamonds or oil on this island and you sell these diamonds or oil or other resource? Initially, as a farmer, you were working the land and getting what you needed to live from the work of your hands. Now you are earning a profit by taking what you had little hand in producing. This profit has no correspondence to the work you're doing or not doing. You might mine them. You might find them laying on the ground. You might have others doing the work for you. Regardless, you profit from your ownership of an island you did not create and which in reality you have no right to. Before you worked the land and grew what you needed, now you take what you find and trade it for what others have worked to create. You are making a profit and using this to claim what others produced. Is there any real difference? And if so, what is the difference between working for what one wants and working to make a profit? Or working to sustain oneself in a personal way and just having other people work to produce money to produce a profit and you claiming that profit on the basis of your ownership of what is being done. Can a government give you legal title to land or other resource? Governments can, because the government says it can, and the government is willing to back up what it says with force, and to back up what legal title means. By claiming the island as yours to do with as you decide, 
you have in effect declared yourself to be the government of that island. As such, you have reserved to yourself the authority to issue title to the land or to its resources. However, no one can give rights to you. They do not have, as you cannot give rights to others that you do not have. No one has a legitimate claim to anything natural or physical, and no government can demonstrate they have a legitimate claim to any geographical feature or natural resource. All such claims have only force to validate them. There are no legal, moral, or ethical arguments can validate ownership of natural resources. Indeed, the nation as an entity based on geography is a legal fiction, and your legal identity is a legal fiction created by this legal fiction called the national government. Your legal identity is a legal fiction created by the state to give the state its own identity to validate its identity. This having an identity defined by the state, a legal identity, defines you or your legal identity at least as the subject of the state. It is owned by the state. But now you have created a legal state that has given you a legal identity. This legal identity can be given legal title to a legal property, and your legal identity is legally entitled to profit from the possession of this natural resource. You hire workers and they produce products and service which you sell for profit. This profit is real for you, but is it real in a more objective sense? Let's imagine all workers worked for free and all owners took all of the earnings their companies made and called these earnings profit. Where would these earnings come from, however? Workers working for free means that nothing would be sold. The people doing the work were not earning any money for the work they do, and so they would be unable to purchase anything they produced. This situation is similar to the problem that plagued the Middle Ages. Only the lords had money, and there were not enough of them, and their needs were not sufficient, to sustain an industrial economy. The problem that plagued the Middle Ages is the same problem created by volunteering or volunteerism. Volunteering adds value to the economy, but volunteers do not create economic activity. Volunteers produce profit, but not income. It is income that keeps the economy going. In other words, a nation could be very rich in resources, natural or capital, but if there is no income, the resources lie idle and unused. It is trade. There has to be trade, and the basis of trade is income. Economists separate the worker from the consumer in their economic theories. However, objectively speaking, there is only the person who works to live. To deprive the consumer of work is to deprive the consumer 
of the means to purchase goods and services. To lower consumer wages is to reduce demand. All income taken from workers and given to an employer does not reduce demand. It shifts consumption from direct consumption to investment. This is generally considered a good thing by economists. This is why profits are applauded. However, as we have seen, to increase profits is not just to increase investment, it is to lower spending on goods and services. Investment without consumption will all but eliminate economic activity. Investing in new capacity does not make sense if the worker is not earning income that would allow him and her to purchase the additional product. If the investment is in passive environments such as stocks and bonds, or in overseas capacity, as in investing in China, the domestic economy, if not harmed, is unlikely to benefit much. The point we are making here is that profits for the individual always make sense in a capitalist economy, but only because capitalism is about making individuals wealthy. What happens to the local, national, or even international economies is irrelevant. Profits and investments are vital if an individual is to prosper and produce profits. If Canada had the capacity to keep accurate accounts, how would its books look? If John shut down his factory employing 3 million persons and moved the operation over to China, John's accounting would show a jump in profitability no doubt, but the national accounts would register a net loss. The consumer might now be able to buy widgets for a cheaper price, but would Canadians have the income to buy these widgets? Do Canadians want cheaper widgets, or do they want jobs? The question is not permitted in capitalism. We can't ask these things. John is expected to shut down production in Canada and move to China if it will re if it will increase his capital. The three million unemployed are a resource that an entrepreneur can tap to create a business for him or herself, perhaps with government assistance. That is the theory. The unemployed are looked at as a resource. But of course the employed are looked at as a cost to be reduced. We are not saying this cannot happen, that is, investment cannot happen, and certainly we are not saying it does not happen. What we are asking is where is the profit, the real profit, the objective profit in all of this? Is Canada a resource for brigands and pirates to exploit as they see benefit? What sort of accounting is being used? We argue Canada is a single ledger. Every cost and benefit ought to be accounted for. Is this too much to ask? If John cannot take from Joe, why can John take from God or Canada or from the community that has contributed so much to his success? Why ought we use one kind of accounting and not another. Why are we using accounting that benefits John and not Canada, or the, at least the community that he lives in?
That Canada does not account for all of the costs John has created makes him appear as if John is making a profit. This profit appears to rely on the accounting anomaly than actual events. Is it so much to ask to not permit our accounting to ignore the externalization of cost? For example, why should John pollute a stream and walk away from the pollution, or pollute the air and walk away from the pollution of the air, or create unemployment and walk away from the cost of the unemployment? Why is this accounting acceptable to Canada and other nations? The Canadian government, in its wisdom, has saw fit to shut down all of the small establishment to increase the profitability of Amazon, Walmart, and other giant retailers. It is said that the profits of their billionaire owners is doubling and more. The stock market is improving on this wonderful news that a dozen or so persons are doing extremely well. The accounts of Amazon show Amazon is a highly successful company. It has made huge profits. What share of this money does Canada get for systematically eliminating the competition so Amazon could succeed in such a wonderful and large and extremely profitable way? Only a madman would call this result a good thing. The profiteering of one company and the loss of tens of thousands of others. Only a corrupted form of accounting would record this windfall a profit. If what these companies are earning is a profit, we need to alter the way we do accounting. However, let's leave them with the earnings for now. Let's imagine all of this newfound profits of Amazon and Walmart and so on are being invested. The argument is always made that without investment, we will have stagnation and eventual economic collapse. This is true for capitalist economies. Capitalism without profits is socialism. In other words, if people are not making profits, capitalism cannot persist or exist, and the economics of capitalism will not exist. We have to, or the economy has to make individuals rich or it's not functioning. Yet profits are an illusion of perspective. If we do not create divisions in the economy, which are inherently fictitious, profits are not possible. Economic competition is just a way of saying people view the interests of some citizens as incompatible with their own. In other words, to create these profits, we have to create divisions between not just people, but between the very person or herself. Capitalism is the belief that in a war of all against all, everyone will benefit. This is not the worst of it, as we have said. Capitalism even divides the legal being into competing parts. We, as consumer, fights we, as worker, and we, as worker, fights we, as investor, and the investor fights the state. Though, theoretically, all of these roles 
might be invested in a single person. We are all definitely workers and consumers. The worker must be divided from consumer, but also from owner. The capitalist is turned into a unique player in the economy. The worker who spends a lifetime honing his skills is not called an investor. The worker who works for a company for five years, making less than he or she could have made elsewhere, so as to help the company get established, is not called an investor. An investor is a person who takes currency and purchase capital or assets, workable assets. Capital is also a different kind of object or it turns objects into a different category. A car is not capital, but a taxi is. A broom in a home is not capital, but a broom in a caretaker storage locker is. A woman caring for her own home is a homemaker. A woman caring for another person's home is an entrepreneur. Is a nation made richer because a broom is turned into a tool or when a woman goes over to clean the house of a neighbor rather than her own? To in increase GNP, gross national product, why not have every man rent his neighbor's car to drive to work and have every woman clean her neighbor's home rather than her own. Is a man made richer by being divided into these competing parts? Is monetary values the only standard by which value is measured? Are values that are not monetized important? By this we mean, if a man loses all he works for, yet improves his bottom line, has he profited? Scripture asks, what profiteth a man if he gain the whole world and loses his soul? The answer might be considered moot if a focus on profits is actually unavoidable. Remember, we noticed a clear distinction between the person who saves and invests money in a profit-orientated enterprise and the persons whose expenditures are on consumables, even though the items may be identical in appearance. The person who saves to buy a taxi is deemed different from the person who saves to buy a car, though it's the same car. The person who learns how to administrate and operate a profit-producing facility is viewed differently than the person who spends large sums of money and great swaths of time learning a skill that will make him or her employable. Investing in yourself, in this sense, is not deemed the same thing as investing in tools and equipment and property. There is the argument that capitalists risk their capital and so deserve to earn a profit. No more so than the person who goes through many years of college and perhaps university with no other hope than he or she will be, shall be viewed as being more employable. Indeed, the cost of an education is often greater than the cost of starting a business. Student loans have to be repaid. Business loans might be grants from the state or other government or an unsecured loan from the bank. Regardless of what sort of business is set up and what amount of money is invested, 
the business purchases goods and services that are available. A million dollars may purchase a house or a factory. In either the case, the materials in the process of assembly are equally available. Investments do not invent business assets. The investment merely serves to assemble what is generally already available through the market. This is important because capitalists often seem to suggest, in their writings at least, there is something mysterious about starting a business. In fact, starting a business is a very simple process when done correctly. Imagine a small town that finds its food becoming expensive. Capitalists think an entrepreneur now ought to step in and save or borrow sufficient capital to buy a farm or a processing facility and then hire workers to hopefully produce food at a cheaper cost than is presently available. He may go broke, however. This could have serious repercussions for the town as well as his family on top of the reality that food prices were not measurably impacted despite the investment because the investment was lost and the entrepreneur went broke. If we looked at any small town, we would find land and other resources available that could be used to grow food. There will also be tools and equipment not being fully utilized that could be used to process and grow food. There will also be people of time that could be used in the growing and processing of food. In other words, regardless of the business, much of the capital needed to start the business already exists and is idle, ready to be used. The formation of the business only requires people to say they are committed or they are committing their assets to the business and invest the time and resources available. In other words, starting a business is mostly about reassigning time and other assets to a new purpose. A business is started by people making choices about what to do with the assets that are available. We do not need entrepreneurs to make the choice and to reassign all these assets him or herself. The business formed assigns credits to investors. If John invests $300, he receives 300 preferred shares, valued at a dollar each, by, issued by the business. If a place is required and the rent is $3,000, the business issues the owner 3,000 preferred shares in lieu of rent. Preferred shares are issued in the form of a currency. That is, they are in the same denominations as the domestic currency. Prefers, as they are called, contraction of preferred shares, can be redeemed by any business within the community. There is no need for profits to start a business. Only equity is needed to start or even run the business. The transfer of assets creates all the equity needed. What the business needs 
it obtains through transfers compensating the investor or seller with an issue of preferred shares equal to the value of the resources it obtains. Profits are not needed to start a business and they are not needed to operate a business. All that is needed is assets and equity. Assets to create the company and equity to operate the company.